This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. Before we get started, we need to give a huge thanks to our sponsors of the podcast. We just picked up Old Cypress Outdoors, so welcome aboard and thank you for sponsoring the podcast for October. And also, as usual, a huge shout out to Steve German's Taxidermy and Cousin's Smokehouse. We couldn't put this on without you. So y'all be sure to check them out online and pick up a bag of Cousin's Smokehouse jerky for your hunting bag this season. Let's get started. On this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, it's all about what we like more, hunting or buying hunting gear. We're talking a little bit about our obsession with hunting products and also some preferences that we have on certain gear between camo, ozonics, clothing, stands, boots, bows, packs, you name it, we cover it all and talk about some of the psychological effects that it has on us and why we stock up on hunting gear every season. So let's get started. So this week's episode is going to be all about hunting gear, uh, preferences, products. Um, none of it. None of this is sponsored by anybody. These are just three guys talking about three different ways to hunt, three different preferences that we have for products, and then also, um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about lessons learned. Maybe when uh, we bought something cheap and then regretted it a year or two later, or things that we thought were going to last and didn't. So we've got Locke Wheeler and Chad Abear. We're, we're getting the band back together. This is episode one crew back at it again. Um, and we're talking about gear. We're talking about camouflage and clothing and boots and bows and stands and, and you, you name it. So thanks for being back on the podcast, guys. Thank you for having right. us. Good to be here. So um, the first thing we're going to talk about is 
just buying stuff. Every year we buy stuff. Every year we buy more stuff. I have more deer stands than I have fingers and toes. I have more arrows than I could shoot in a lifetime. I've got more, you know, good and rusted and blown and have never used broadheads lying around that I know what to do with. But every year I buy more. So why do you think this is? Why do we do this? Well, I think, I think in, in thinking about this topic before we uh, came here tonight, one of the things that I thought of was kind of the idea that there's two different types of gear that we buy as hunters so um it would be your essential gear and your hobby what's the word hobby for fun you know keeping, i can't help I it you're, you're because up with the impulsive gear, uh, that's, that's impulsive gonna, yeah gear. impulsive gear impulsive there you go essential gear and impulsive gear so essential gear being okay if my boots are leaking I'm going to go buy a new pair of hunting boots before the season because mm-hmm. I literally am not going to go and and spend the time and effort that I that I want to spend hunting without a pair of boots that doesn't leak. Yep. You know, but my clothes are torn up or my stand is broken. I mean, there's things that we buy you that have to you have. have to have them and you buy them and and now maybe we buy more than necessary mm-hmm. um or more expensive than necessary, but you know, there are things I think that if we hunt enough that we're there's a consumable mark within hunting gear so there's that but then there's all the other stuff that we convince ourselves that we need to have in order to be successful so so you have you have essentials and then do do we want to call the other one revolving revolving and i i like to i think impulsive is the word i was looking impulsive there you go we as a hunter we're wrapped up in all of our fantasies that we hope to play out in the in the woods this this season and so we're easily um sold and we we buy impulsively on the latest the greatest whether it be something new we've never tried or whether it be an improvement on something we've been using Mm -hmm. um i think we are the easiest to sell to retail market (laughs) possibly absolutely that there is yeah well you know the one of the things that i wanted to talk about in this episode is and and i'm going to kind of take this stance and i'm going to become hypocritical later on is talking about um things that are unnecessary things that we convince ourselves we need but we don't that doesn't lend itself in any way shape or form to us killing more deer Right. Um, what we do when we buy things, regardless of if, it, if it's impulsive or essential, is we buy things that in our minds make up for some shortcoming that we have or will get we think will give us a better chance of killing an animal. But mm-hmm. oftentimes it doesn't. And actually, sometimes it goes the opposite. We buy something because we fall for something that's a gimmick. Maybe it's a scent. Maybe it's a, uh, an attractant, and it ends up hurting us rather than helping us. But um, the reason why we do this every year is it's, it's like the hunter's version of retail therapy. It's, it's, um, even though we don't need therapy we're not trying to fix anything you know from having a bad day or something maybe sometimes we do we buy stuff on the internet because we're having a a crap day and we want you know want a new uh i don't know a new shirt or a new jacket or something like that but um it is a euphoric feeling that we get when we buy something that 
we're going to depend on that might be expensive. You know, this could be camouflage. It could be a deer stand. This could be a, a new pair of waders. Who knows? In fact, you know, you've got, you've got companies coming out these days with five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar pair of waders that are supposed to be lifetime guarantees. But still, what's at eight hundred? Bows don't even cost eight hundred dollars, and we're going to buy a pair of waders or a pair of boots that cost three or four hundred. I, I have a, a, a pair of three hundred and twenty-five dollar boots, and I'll talk about why I bought those later on. But um, anyway, it's about a feeling that we get when we acquire a new piece of gear. Right, it's almost like hitting the reset button on the season. In fact, a lot, a lot of the times, if we think about the the timing of this happening every year, it's kind of like our rut, right? It's our, it's our, you know, our glands are are swollen and we start to stink a little bit, and it's about time to start buying some hunting gear as soon as the, you know, it's either preseason or the weather drops um, and the the uh, the temperature drops, and so we are every year almost conditioned by the. Um, by the industry these days that we need to buy more stuff every year to be effective. And for me, and we talked about this in the very first episode a little bit, I, to an extent, I thought that I was a minimalist hunter until I heard how Chad hunts and, <laughs> and like Chad with Chad, sometimes I don't even wonder if he even needs a deer stand, you know, cause he, you don't bring anything with you nope. pretty much. Um, you, you I haven't just, even clicked my thermosel on this year. That's insanity. Because when I went hunting with you a couple of weeks ago, I was I was dying. Yep. Yeah. Um, I just fight through it, man. Like <laughs> my my, my rangefinder, my flashlight, and my bow. Mm. That's it. Well, um, so you know, let's let's talk first before we get into specifics. Let's talk about what do you bring hunting with you in your bag? What what is what do you take with you? Locke, you go first. All right. So first off, um, currently with the video work that I do and have been doing the last several years, this dynamics changed for me. So I'll talk um, more along the lines of what I did before I was hauling camera equipment around, because now that, you know, that that's a different conversation and it actually has mm-hmm. eliminated some of the stuff that I would take. But, um, I, um, am definitely not a minimalist and I probably have more stuff in my office shop, man cave whatever you want to call it um that never goes in my pack but it's there in case i decide on a random <laughs> hunt that it needs to um but you know I, I take my pack i always take water i always take my thermosel um and, until it gets cold um you know a, a flashlight i'm not much of a light guy to be honest with you i'm kind of crazy like that mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't I, I only take a light in the woods with me if I feel like I absolutely have to. Oh, yeah. Mine's um, just for blood trailing. Like, I, so, I never turn mine on. So, I'm not much on the light, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, um, I'm trying to think. I, I do bring a call with me um, most of the time. Not really early season, but. A grunt call? Yeah, a grunt call. One of our um, grunt calls? Yeah. <laughs> one of our grunt calls, one way or the other. <laughs> one of our, as in T3 and Louisiana Bowhunters yeah, grunt calls. Yeah, I, I'll take that. You know, my phone. I have a, I have a Kindle, and I read. So I read in the stand. I take my Kindle. You can read. I can read. I, believe it or not, I, I've, um, I've been wanting to learn. I, uh, I take my Kindle with me most of the time, unless I'm just going on a real short. You know, just jumping the tree for the afternoon. Yeah. Um, as far as gear, my rangefinder, my binoculars, I guess uh, that's that's gear, but I almost that's so much a part of my it's like not taking my trigger finger, not having my binoculars. So. so when you're packing your bag, 
do you look at gear based on maybe it's kind of seasonal seasonal yeah i mean it is seasonal a lot of it has to do with the weather when i'm packing my bag i am thinking about i'm playing scenarios in my head for what i might need with me right Um, yeah i do that let let me answer the question this i this is the way i operate be it in my truck or in my office depending on whether i'm you know on the road hunting somewhere or if i'm hunting by my house my bag so i have an essential basically my bag stays one way from the time I start hunting until the end of the season, and it's an additive thing from there. So, mm-hmm. you know, binoculars, rangefinder, a light, um, a, a, a bottle of water. That so those are comes your staple items. Yeah, my, okay. my Kindle, um, yeah, an extra release. I take an extra release because mm-hmm. I shoot a thumb release, so if it falls, you know, it's not hooked to me. So mm-hmm. I have an extra release in my bag. Um, Thermocell, that might come out later in the season. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, you know, a few things like that, wind checker, things like that. They stay in my bag, and then, you know, I might throw a raincoat in there if, if there's rain in the forecast. I might uh, throw an extra call or, or add a call later in the season if I'm not taking a call with me. You know, there are things like that that I will add in. Now, what kind of bag are you hunting with? I actually have a – it's not a brand-name bag um, – it's a I don't even know what brand it is. It's an army surplus style tactical bag and mm-hmm. I and I have it because it it does well for my camera equipment, but I, I also use it as my hunting it's bag. It's a backpack? Yeah, it's a backpack. Gotcha. Um it's it's a it's a range bag. Actually it's mm-hmm. a range uh, okay. tactical like 511 type olive green gotcha. uh range bag, but I I chose it very meticulously because of camera equipment, but it doubles great for a just I I use it as my just mm-hmm. regular pack as well. All right, Chad. Uh, in three words or less, tell me what you take hunting with you. <laughs> now I'm not gonna. No, don't, don't don't get me wrong, man. I do have stuff. Um, like I have a backpack. Um, I generally don't ever take it out here locally. It stays at home until I go to Illinois, or if I'm going to hunt um, with someone and stay three or four days. And it's the only time I really ever need it is when I know it's going to be really cold and I need to layer up and I don't want to. You know, and I carry an extra jacket, you know, a hoodie or something in there. But um, for the most part, when I hunt, like, say, if I am going to bring something, it's going to be my fanny pack. Um, And I keep – and it stays geared up all the time. I just never bring it. It Hmm. it stays in my box. I keep a box in the back of my truck. Um, So I know I have – I have a can call in there. I know I have a little box with some reflective – thumbtacks in mm-hmm. case i get far off bright i can start eyes, bright yeah. eyeing myself i've got an extra pull-up rope in there um i keep an extra um safety line a safety rope you know for the tree you know to put my line my uh safety harness on mm-hmm. um a lineman's belt tether no no the tether to oh, just tether. Yeah, to hook, oh, to hook onto yeah um you know i mean i carry a wind checker you know stuff like that that stays in there all the time but i like i said when i'm hunting my place and i've only got certain select stands and i'm only going to hurt them hunt them certain select days on certain winds at certain times i'm walking in with my flashlight and my rangefinder i'm not See, i'm trying anything. to be like chad it's hard but look hey I, look man i i spent his truck is always pretty close by though <laughs> yeah well very, my 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 issue here you saying that reminds me a little bit more about the original question here's where my pack gets heavy and this is that the same theory of the OCD person who has to leave their truck and walk back and make sure the door's checked five times because they, you know, mm-hmm. what I'm, you know that that mental disorder. Um, 
if I'm undecided about where I'm going, I will convince myself, man, I don't remember if there's a bow hanger in that tree. I'm not sure. Oh, Let yeah. me take an extra pull-up rope. Just to, No, in my mind, I know there's a tether. I know there's a, a, a bow hanger. And I know there's a pull-up rope because I do that when I set my stands. Well, it's worth the, it's worth the 30 seconds of worry to... Uh, on the forefront of your hunt rather than pay yeah. for a stupid thing the, the next six hours while you're in the yeah. tree. Yeah, and so that's where, check. that's the kind of stuff that ends up in my pack that makes me... Heavy. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> tree stand accessories. I might could be... Well, like like you said, the bow hanger, I, I hung a new set just because I was trying to hunt a certain wind and I forgot to put a bow hanger Look, in there. Bless, if, my you next, are, my, if you're a hunter, if you're listening to this and you sit in a tree for four hours and hold your bow, God bless you. Oh, yeah. I had to. I, I didn't have a choice. I left mine. I but cannot the next hunt, do that. Uh, the next hunt, I had one in, but that was my other thing, and it came with me just in my pants pocket, and I screwed it in now, a tree and hung my bow, and that's need, the only other thing I brought. I need to say something, and, and this is worth uh, noting to the audience, is that Chad is a front-loaded hunter. And what I mean by that is he does all of his work preseason and all he does during season is throw food out and check cameras that's it that's it this dude does not move a stand until like september of the next year okay unless i know i need to bring a climber and and, and, and i'm on it the other deer. thing about chad is that he, he's been a guide you used to guide for was it twin silos two silos what's yep. that place up by cat yeah. island that's it twin yeah silos. way up there along the mississippi river he used to hunt cat island a lot and and so the analogy I have between you and I is, is you deer hunt now the way that I duck hunt, like almost Cadillac style. Show up and hunt, right? Not a lot of work. That's right. Not putting waders on, not even going to wear camouflage. I'm going to pull up in the boat, and I'm going to pop a blind, throw out the decoys, and let my dog get the ducks, and I'm going to cook breakfast and have a good time. So, so I do all my front-loaded work for duck season that way. But for deer hunting, I'm as mobile as mobile can be. I'll set up a stand 20 feet from a pre-hung stand just to make sure that I'm in the perfect position for the wind for that hunt if I'm hunting a specific deer and I'm trying to really trying to kill him and so Chad you represent the private land pre-work everything's done show up and hunt hunter so you know, I, I wanted to clarify that because I don't want people to think that you're walking two miles into public <laughs> land with nothing. That's right. No, that's, that's not, not what happen. you're no. that's not what you're doing. Right. I've no. hunted with you now. Locke, you are kind of a mix. You have a couple I'm, different properties. I think I, th- I think prep wise, I'm the same as Chad. The difference between Chad is the private land preparatory mentalist. Mm hmm minimalist but he's graduated to that that's my right. point and right. my problem is i have an ocd about hunting gear that that has prohibited me <laughs> from fully graduating because i do have several properties um that i hunt in louisiana and mississippi and i do my best effort my desire is to be prepped mm-hmm. i don't now i will move stands i'm i'm the guy that um i will get down out of a tree at nine o'clock and move a stand knowing with intentions and i'll do that all year long mm-hmm. um you did it today yeah i did it today mm. uh, i took my i took my <laughs> chad, son chad uh, shaking his head no he said, that sounds yeah. terrible. Look, that's look if i know something like that's gonna happen my climber's gonna be in well I, yeah I t- i'll not, tell you i'll tell you the story uh i took my son hunting yesterday afternoon and this morning before church for the youth right. uh losing youth season well uh yesterday afternoon was just kind of a sit on a food plot see what happens this morning we went into an area where the acorns are falling and we blew some deer out 
and he didn't really know what was going on. But as I paid attention, <laughs> I kind of figured out something that was going on behind us. And I knew that the next this morning that I had this opportunity with this wind, I knew where we needed to be. Mm-hmm. So, boop, boop, That's you it. know, put it mm-hmm. up. And now it may be a week or two, but all we got to do is slip in there and climb in the stand and we're done. And I do do that throughout the year. Now, when you blew these deer out or when you pushed them out, did, did they just uh, run and throw their tail up or did they stand there and, and blow at you? Well, it was dark and they didn't blow. They okay. slipped out and the direction they went and then i could hear them behind us feeding off in the general direction and mm-hmm. then about eight o'clock right before we got down i caught a glimpse and could hear another deer behind us and basically i'm 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 of the impression now that we were in the right spot had the deer been moving an hour later mm-hmm. for this morning but they're primarily coming through about 100 yards behind us mm-hmm. um, on the other side of a thicket in another oak flat and uh that's easier to get to without blowing them out and you know a lot of factors like that yeah so i make those kind of decisions a lot but still even within those small decisions my my goal is to set that up where all i have to do is climb up there sit down and hunt my problem is i cannot seem to minimize the backpack situation (laughs) i still convince myself of when was the last time that you hung a stand the morning of a hunt um well now i do it in the midwest all the time Mm-hmm. So when I'm on those hunts, you know, you got five days and um, we'll do that. Um, one of the things I like to do um, is to do in the middle of the night, personally. I'll go hang a stand in the middle of the night. Really? If, even if I know I'm going to hunt it six hours later, you hmm. know. Um, but I guess the last, I mean, I did that last year, a time or two. You know, I, I moved a stand. Um, I got down at dark, went back to my truck, got a drink of water, let it get good and dark, went move the stand, come back hunting it the next morning. Any luck after doing that last year? Not last year, but I have had luck doing that before. Gotcha. Well, so the reason why I ask you about um, your deer and what they did when you pushed them out was because, um, so I was talking with Russell Scarborough, who uh, won't come on the show, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he'll tell me tell me kind of some tips and tricks and some advice and things. And, and um, he, a, lot of, a lot of his hunting experience actually comes just strictly from common sense, right, in, in almost to the fact that, uh, you know, some of the things that we talk about are very obvious, but sometimes the most obvious advice is exactly what people need to hear um, because you don't know, you know, the person on the other side of this microphone, you don't know what they're struggling with. You know what I mean? You don't know what they're struggling with in the woods. You don't know what questions they have. You don't, I mean, we've all been through a point in time where like a deer blows at us. Should we stay? Right. Yeah. It might've been a long time ago, but you know, um, well, I've seen it asked a bunch, even through your site, yeah. I had a deer blow. Should I come back and hunt this buck? People I mean, ask this stuff what do all, I do? The, all the time. Okay. And so, um, you know, one of the, some of the great advice that, that he gave me a few weeks ago when we were talking was that, um, if you are walking out of your stand uh, and you push some deer, if they, uh, and this could be anywhere, this could be hundred yards off. This could be 20 yards away. This could be off on a feeder. This could be in an Oak flat open field. Doesn't matter. If you push deer out of an area where deer naturally were and they see you and they tuck tail and they just start running, you just see a tail, you know, flying and flagging in the woods and flying, running away. Then, um, if you come back and hang a stand in that spot nearly immediately, they'll come back without any questions asked. Um, they don't know what it was. That's their defense mechanism is, is flight, right? Flee. Mm-hmm. Now, when you get winded, 
and they stand behind you and blow for 5, 10, 20 minutes, that, I'm not going to sit here and tell you don't hunt that spot anymore. That's not true. But you might want to give that a couple of days, right? You might want to give that a couple of sits away in a different area and let that area normalize. But if a deer just runs for you, it doesn't matter if it's a buck, if it's a doe, if it's a fawn, if they just run away, that area is not ruined. And that, so That's a great point. Yeah, don't think that it is. A deer running away from you is not a bad thing. Now, a deer standing 200 yards from you or 50 yards from you and just blowing and stomping over and over, <laughs> yeah. that's a little different. Yeah. Well, right? it, I, it goes kind of to the old, a lot of people say this, and I, I know without a doubt that it makes a difference. Uh, if you have private property, if, someone can, if you have deer in a food plot, if someone can come pick you up in a truck, mm-hmm. you're way better off because if – if you're sitting in a stand watching deer feed, they don't know you're there, and your buddy can come drive up there with a, with a four-wheeler or a, a truck, and the deer just run off, that's normal for them. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm not going to stand here while you come driving through. Let me get out of here. That's my nature. Um, that is vastly better for your future hunts than if they see you climb down out of your stand, smell you, see you, and they're completely startled, like it's a, whoa, what just happened type moment for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like you said, I think it's a in the fight or flight mentality that we deal with as humans. Deer aren't burdened with those things. Deer don't stand their ground. Yeah, they, they don't first, have ego. My first they ever bow kill, specifically, uh, when we were on Cat Island, that was how they did their guides. They drove every person. We had an old suburban. It was loud. It was smelly. It was, but it was there. It mm-hmm. stayed on the premises, and that's they went everywhere. So every person got dropped off and picked up out of this vehicle. And to the first, my first bow kill was allotted from them. They were like, "Yeah, we'll let you go shoot a deer." So they drove me to the stand, and as we turned the corner, deer scattered. And it's two o'clock in the evening. Deer scattered, and they drove me literally within ten feet. I climbed up in the stand. Within thirty minutes, deer came right back and I shot my first deer within within 40 minutes of me getting dropped off you know another thing that 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 russell said because he was he was on a roll when he was kind of we were talking about this stuff was that um if you ever feel as if you're the deer are patterning you meaning if you're taking a four-wheeler to your stand and you've got that 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 muffler that that exhaust that's going and the deer hear that obviously and then they over time especially if you only ride your four-wheeler through there during hunting season they know you're coming to hunt right and so they might avoid that area if they hear your four-wheeler some of the tricks that he's done one of them is if he feels as if as if he's being patterned from taking a bike into the woods He'll climb down mid-morning, 9.30, 10 o'clock, get on his bike, drive it 500 yards away, park it, walk back, climb back up in the stand, kill a deer. Because those deer are patterning that sound, and they know that you're leaving. They know when you come in. Um, now, I'm not saying he's parking the four-wheeler under the stand or that people do that as bow hunters. You know, a lot of rifle hunters that do that, especially with box stands. But, um, you know, if you – this is a, a literal cat-and-mouse game every time you walk in the woods it's you versus the deer so if you feel as if the deer is patterning you or if you're doing repetitive actions day after day or weekend after weekend that prove that you're here and you're going to kill something they'll start to avoid that so just play the game and kind of reverse it on them if you will um now so both of y'all are hunting a lot of pre-hung sets 
you know, you might be coming in and, and filling a feeder or coming in and throwing rice bran down or whatever. So I hunt very mobily. I, I do have uh, two, two permanent stands that I'll hunt, and I generally will only hunt them um, if I don't have good sign to hunt somewhere else or if I'm in a rush, meaning if I have to do something mid-morning or have to get back for a dinner or something like that after dark. But in my bag... I have gone to uh, it's a nameless bag. I, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a one shoulder bag. I would call it medium size. It's not as big as a full backpack like you would have in school or like a big, you know, two or three pocket backpack. Um, but it's big enough for me to um, hold my uh, my thermocell, a bottle of water, uh, a saw for trimming trees. I actually just got. Um, is it a Hoyman? Is yes. that what it's called? Yeah. I just got one. I've been hunting with a cheap saw for a while. I just bought a Hoyman last week um, that folds up pretty compact. Um, and uh, I go through that thing probably every other hunt. And I always make sure that I have some sort of snack in there. I usually go with um, like ranch flavor sunflower seeds or some, something. <laughs> the smelliest <laughs> things you can find. Yeah, huh? sure. <laughs> um, and um, like a granola bar or something like that. But water is key for me. I mean, I'm like a camel, man. I got to have a ton of water. And for for the other thing is I'm very weight conscious, very weight conscious, because I'm hunting with a, um, a mobile lock-on stand and climbing sticks, which is, you know, depending on how high you want to get, it can be heavier than a climbing stand at times. Um, and so some of the things that are my staple items are thermocell. I don't – it could be – eight degrees outside and I will have a thermosel in there because it never fails. <laughs> it will warm up and those devils will come out and they'll start biting me. Right. <laughs> and then I got to start wiping my hands every five or 10 seconds and, and wiping these things off and trying to keep them from buzzing around. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the beginning of the podcast is mosquitoes yeah. buzzing around our head. That's it's, because it's ever present. Yeah. I mean, we can't avoid it here. And so, um, thermosel is a big one. I do always have an extra pull up rope, um, I always seem to have some reason to have an extra cheap carabiner or two. Oh, I know. Like well, those always. things everywhere, but I, I love having them too. I love them, man. Um, I always have a, uh, on my, on my, um, safety harness right here. Well, on like where my right, right chest pocket would be on my safety harness. I tied a little loop of paracord and I hang a single AAA battery stream light there and i always have a flashlight it's always on me if i'm hanging a stand it's on me if i'm climbing down in the woods it's on me if i'm tracking a deer it's on me it's not in my pack it always hangs on my climbing harness right here on my my right chest and it's not in the way it doesn't clank anything but i always know that it's there um and then what else do i have in there i already said the uh yeah the extra pull-up rope is key i mean there's nothing worse than not mm. having a pull-up rope that sucks so <laughs> bad that sucks, man. Having to climb. Well, it can be dangerous, too. Yeah. You know, you're trying to force yourself up a tree with one arm. and There's nothing to make you yeah. kick yourself more than for getting a, a pull-up rope. But, um, and then uh, the other thing is, is binoculars. I always have a pair of binoculars. You know, I didn't hunt with um, a rangefinder at all last year because everything was mainly 20 yards and under. Um, this year I've gone back to it, and I'm thinking about just not carrying one anymore. Um you know my boat my bow shoots pretty quick i've got it shooting 324 feet per second so it's a very flat trajectory um so i know out to about 50 yards where i need to be um like just just eyeballing it 
but that's about it for me. Um, I'm very weight conscious, uh, but the binoculars and the bottle of water and the pull-up rope are my big three things, right? And then I always have a light on me no matter what. So listening to you kind of makes me – so I've mentioned that I sold all my climbing stands last year. Mm-hmm. I just swore it off. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, about the only way I'm going to hunt in a climbing stand is if you invite me and say, here, take this climber and go over there. That's where you need to hunt. Mm-hmm. I'll do it for one hunt. But because of that, I have been able to minimize a lot of things in my pack because as a climbing hunter, um, you know, I had I had the carabiners, I had the extra rope, I had the saw, I had, you know, now so many things that I might need just to get me in and out of the tree effectively and safely and everything else, I don't have to have because I've done all that work before. Yeah. Uh, and theoretically, if I know where I'm going and I don't talk myself into, oh, is there that, you know, of the, I don't have those issues, um, that's helped me with that. Um, so. Now you were talking about a bow hanger earlier, right? Yeah. So um, I, on my, my super light stand, my Millennium M7, I actually modified an HME bow hanger. You ever seen that one that like clips on yeah. the square tubing? Mm-hmm. So what I did was I took the tubing bracket off. I, I kind of cut the the barrel down a little bit, and then I, I drilled and um, tapped it with a 5 bolt. And then I drilled the hole in my stand, and I bolted it through on the other side with a 5 bolt. And so that thing lives on my deer stand on the left side. And See, I don't perfect. like I've tried it, and it, it – to me, it doesn't wouldn't matter how I modified the attachment of it. I don't like it around my feet. Yeah, I've tried the ones like right in front of you that makes the bow kind of between your so knees. You have a hanger then. I have, a, and that's one thing that I didn't mention when you first asked. I do always have an extra hanger. I have a little, uh, a small one that's made by Hawk, mm-hmm. and it telescopes. Mm-hmm. So it it comes out to what is that? About a foot and a half, mm-hmm. but it shrinks down to probably eight inches or so. And it's you know I found it to be really good. It's got a good sharp bit and all that and it's very lightweight it's a graphite uh telescoping tube and it's always in my bag because i don't like anything around my feet and i'm i'm just and we talked about the way i hang my stands i hang my sets with i try with a stick ladder right next to me because i like to hang stuff extra stuff away from me you hang it on the sticks hey i hang things on the sticks and then i also when i set my stands i always have a bow hanger but i always have an extra one because um, whether I have all the, the camera equipment becomes really necessary. You need plate to put things, mm-hmm. but even without that, I don't like things attached to my stand. I don't like things around my feet. I don't like things around my waist. Mm-hmm. I, I want them to be hanging on the tree, easily accessible, but away from me. That way, if I lean forward or I lean back and I'm reading and I lean back or anything, I just don't, I don't know. Yeah. Well, um, I've got another little tip or a trick that I started doing a few years ago. That's helped me out a lot. Um, I hate carrying things with my hands into the woods. I like having my hands way. free. Um, and I think that's because of banana spiders. <laughs> that's not my reason, but I, I like to be able to, I, I, I you bring need the SWAT a, factor, I, huh? I, I usually pick, if it's early in the season, I'll pick up a long stick and I'll hold it out in front of me as I walk you into the as woods. much judo chopping. Effort yeah, man, can, I want, huh? I want my hands free. And um, I don't like having an extra bow sling that was just, you know, redundant for something I feel, I feel I could I could use, repurpose something else for. So my Lyman's belt, which I made myself, it's a, um, it's a, uh, 
safety line that I cut down. It came with my Millennium tree stand. Um, it's a safety line that I cut down. I made a prusik knot for it um, and bought two rock climbing aluminum carabiners that are real lightweight but r- real strong. Real strong. Um, I tied paracord loops to the ends of my bow right where the limb pockets are, and I used my lineman's belt as a bow hanger. You've seen me do yeah. it, Chad. Yeah. yeah. And so I have my lineman's belt because I have my bow, so I always have my lineman's belt. So it's kind of a safety measure there because I have walked in the woods in the past without a lineman's belt, and then your safety harness is worthless. But um, because I use my lineman's belt as my tether as well, my tie-off mm-hmm. point. Um, but uh, that's been a big help for me, a really big help for me um, as far as just redundancy and making sure I have all my safety gear and having my hands free when I'm walking through the woods. So I have – my if I'm hunting mobily that day, I'll have my um, climbing stand, four Hawk helium sticks that I converted to Versa buttons and lone wolf straps. I took the middle steps steps out of them um, for lightness as well, and then I'll hang my backpack on the back of that, and then I'll have my uh, hands free because I got my lineman's belt holding my bow, and I've got everything strapped to me like I'm a pack mule. But I'm at least I you know I can judo chop my way through the woods like we said for banana <laughs> spiders. So that's you know between that. And um, that modified bow hanger, or that modified bow stand. Plane. Pl- no, the not the hanger for the stand for oh, actually yeah, hold, the, the bow the holder. Bow holder. Yeah. yeah. So um, see, that's, I'm out, I've that's got one of my favorite on my climber, but it's mounted on the upper rail next yeah, to I me. I had one of those mm-hmm. on on a climber too. Yeah. I just I didn't like that either. Every I'm I'm I have this, or I had, um, I had one on a, uh, on an old man climber, yeah. and um, I lived. In the stand with this ever fear that I was going to bump it, knock and it off. Bow, bow was going to fall. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, like the old man. When I started hunting public land, that's what we had. Oh, I've, I mean, I've hunted. In I had an old man, time. and I can remember having a backpack with. Because when you go public land back in the day, I mean, it was you were going to spend some time out there. And I, man, I've been through tunica with my backpack on top of the old man yeah. over my shoulders, and it just oh, you know yeah. seventy pounds of weight on my back. Two miles back. I had in the a woods. system myself where I yeah. could I could lean my stand folded up, ready to pack. I had um, I had fashioned some padded straps that were more comfortable, and mm-hmm. I could lean my stand up against the tree, and I like with the with the way the the cables make the loop. Mm-hmm. I could get the top of my pack over that, and then I had a bungee strap. Yeah. I strapped that, and it strapped it all together yep. real tight. I mean, it was still heavy, but it it carried well. It didn't rattle. It didn't mm-hmm. sag. Yep. You know, and that was. In and out, in and out, in and out, you know, um, pretty much mode of operation for a long time. And I finally, uh, I've, I've mentioned this in other podcasts, and I know we've talked about this just as friends talking hunting, but my thing, um, I not only do I, the safety aspect, but I, I just, I just got tired of the amount of effort it took. Oh, oh I, I agree. I mean, even when I was packing it, I, I think the first, so I went, we went to uh, a lock-on system. And the first lock-on that I ever owned was an old man Carbon Air Elite. And that was like, back then, it was everything I could do to save. I mean, it was like 300 bucks. And we're talking 20-something, you know, probably close to 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was unheard of to spend that kind of money on a deer stand. But I knew, just like what you said, man, if I'm going to pack something, I'm tired of packing 70 pounds. I'm going to do whatever it costs it takes to lighten that load. So I bought that stand, dude, and I bought... I can't remember what kind of climbing sticks. And then, like you said, man, I had, it took me weeks of trying to configure out a way to attach all my stuff and all my gear to it and get it on there. 
And, he, and you know, so two miles back in the woods, I'm not dead, and I can't even get up in this well, tree. Well, when Old Man made the vision in the aluminum, mm-hmm. the price went way up. Yeah. But it went from 32 pounds to 18 pounds, mm-hmm. and it was a game changer. Yeah. Um, a major game changer. That's and I, and I hunted with that for a long, long, long time. I just it, it 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 wasn't the packing. I had the packing, like you said. I spent so much time and effort figuring that out mm-hmm. that I had the packing part down, more or less okay with that. It it just it just the effort of everything that went into getting it off my back, getting it on a tree, getting up there, making sure I'm level and comfortable, and then having to do it all just to get back out of the woods. That is, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I think I think our point personal preference in, in getting out of a climber back then. I still honestly prefer to hunt in a climber. I feel comfortable in it. I, I don't have a problem with it at all. What is it? Is you like you like I, a railed climber? Yeah, I like a rail climber. So I, like I, I had a, I had an open face climber um, up until a few years. I think I, that's the one I sold. Yeah, you. we traded. You yeah, traded out. And then uh, I just just got to the point where I just didn't like an open front climber. I wanted a little more security. But mm-hmm. uh, I went. I went to the lock-on system because of the versatility of being able, you know, like your point, being able to get into better situations, better trees, hunting better, better areas where I knew the climber was yeah. obsolete. Like yet, like yesterday, I made a hunt yesterday evening, and um, I hunted a tree that I remember when I climbed down. I took everything down. I didn't see anything last night, but I, I climbed down and I was repacking up, and I was like, you know, I could have easily hunted that with a um, with a climber. It was it was it was a. Uh, 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 gum tree sweet gum you know mm-hmm. not necessarily straight but relatively the same size from top to bottom it doesn't taper out too too bad but um i thought about it and i was like you know this spot where i was i was trying to saddle myself in between two dropping oaks um and it was not the best tree to be in for concealment but the reason why i hunted in it was because it had trees next to it that i could get above their brush line if you will i was hunting about so i was in a bare tree meaning i wasn't around limbs in my tree but the tree that trees that were immediately around me kind of concealed me um and uh, i still even if i'm hunting in an area that has perfectly straight hardwoods that i could hunt in a lock in a uh, climber i would rather take a lock on just because of I mean, how many times have we found a spot that we think is perfect that we want to set up and we're forced to hunt 40 yards from it because of tree selection or lack thereof, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I'll, I'll always um, – I still have climbers. I've got a um, lone wolf hand climber that's great for about three and a half hours, and then I can't fit on that tiny little book of a, yeah. of a seat anymore. <laughs> um, and then uh, and then I've got a um, summit what, – what was it? Is it open shot? What was it? The open they, shot was their you open traded front me. Stand. I don't even. Yeah, know. But he, the one he gave me was. Um, we, so I had a Goliath. It's the newer, it's the newer one, the, the round tube. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had a Goliath um, that has a rail, but it's real big. And I traded you my Goliath for for whatever you gave me. I don't think it's an open shot because um, it has the it had the universal seat in it. And then you had upgraded it to, and I'm going to let you all know this is one of the greatest things, greatest modifications you can make to a climate stand. Look up has more seats, H-A-Z-M-O-R-E. Um, it is a uh, webbing style seat similar mm-hmm. to an old man, but it's universal for a lot of um, climbing stands and even some lock-ons. But you had upgraded it to that. 
And that thing's a game changer. Oh, yeah. It's comfortable. It's light. It's scent-free. It doesn't hold water. You can leave it in the woods, and it won't rot and all this stuff. But um, So I've got a couple of climbing stands, but usually what I do is if I have a piece of property that's like a lease or I can hunt regularly, I'll leave it there on the on a tree and i'll climb up on the tree that i want to hunt you know if i if i don't want to hang a a, a mo, uh, hang a permanent lock on scene i'll just leave that climber that that's kind of my in between right that's my that's the middle ground between you know a mobile lock on system and a permanent lock on stand is that if i need to be semi-mobile or move every once in a while and i've got a lot of tree options i'll hunt with my climber but that i mean i hadn't broken that out in like two years it's been a little while i did that when i was not that I'm, not that I'm, not that I'm rich by any stretch of the imagination. But when I was younger, um, because I couldn't afford to have a I bunch just of stands, have, I didn't have a bunch of stands. I had a couple yeah. of lock-ons, mm-hmm. and I moved them around that way. Um, and it, that that was the most useful function f- for me, you mm-hmm. know, my, for my personal preferences for the uh, the climbing stand. Is you know when I had a lease, you know, and I had. 10 spots that 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 i wanted to hunt different winds different days different weather whatever you know i could run you know get out of the stand run over there and grab a climber and move it to another spot and go hunt it that afternoon yeah. and it took two minutes right. i mean just click click you know just change it on the tree for that i you know i could get on board with that but now i just decided you know i can buy a few more lock-ons and get out of this yeah I, honestly man like i've gotten to the point because i'm on you know, private land, and it's easier for me to do it. I've gotten into the uh, the twenty foot single man ladders. Yeah, I do that. I mean, man, I do you, the doubles. Just, yeah, I mean, yeah, right. But well, I do a single man, and I'll hang a lock on if I'm bringing my daughter or somebody. This worth like we have some double man ladders for rifle stands, but for bow hunting strictly, um, I mean, it's just so simple. Oh my gosh, yep. man, mm-hmm. it's just too easy, bro. You know. So let's get let's get into some other gear topics here. I, I've literally got a sheet of paper here in front of us that we kind of we we um, did some brainstorming beforehand on some things we wanted to cover. Let's talk about camouflage, right? Um, now, Locke, you are a big Scree guy, right? You're affiliated with Scree and their systems. You are a mossy oak guy. Yep. And I am. A whatever is cheapest, did I find it on clearance? Will it keep me warm? Maybe guy. Okay. So, as long as it fits, it's wearing the guy. So, ex- yeah, and some se- season after season, sometimes it doesn't fit as well as it did before. But uh, what I saw something on Facebook the other day. It said your dry your dryer isn't shrinking your clothes. Your refrigerator is. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that one's a little close to home, maybe. But all right, so um, let's talk about performance clothing and the lack thereof right okay i am i am a cotton guy and just have been for a long time and the only time that i regret this is when it is cold as shit and i feel like ralphie's little brother in a christmas story you don't regret it in early october when you're when the neckline of your shirt is sagging down to your <laughs> I, do, I don't i don't and I'll, I'll tell you why so i tried going to like polyester lightweight yeah. perforated you know barely like paper thin materials and polyester stuff i feel holds your scent so much worse than cotton does I, and, and if, and I, I mean, I have a cotton shirt that's in my truck. I have a polyester bottle man shirt that's in my truck. And if, and I mean, even I have a, I think this is an Under Armour polyester, sh- like workout shirt I'm wearing right now. It will just, 
you can smell it. It's almost like it holds it more. And and I'm not the only person I've ever heard say that, but um, I don't feel as if cotton holds it as much. And it might, it might sound crazy a little bit. I, I don't know if there's any science behind that. I think I just think the <laughs> but po- the polyester shirts that I have because I always keep my stuff hanging outside. So it stinks. So here's you know from a performance apparel. Mm-hmm. Not a sales pitch, but just a you know a, a, the standpoint of what that is. So it it goes along with the breathability and the the moisture management and all that kind of stuff. Um, it the idea is not just to wick it away, but to dry it out quickly. Mm-hmm. So poly, you're right, is not the way to go strict poly now so like with scree and this goes for sitka and qu cryptech first light they all do it that's where your merino mm-hmm. comes in and your poly blends that take care of some of that so like your workout clothes are more polyester mm-hmm. so than than the poly hunting clothes the poly hunting clothes are a different type of blend they're teflon coated and that is more about moisture management wind management and durability but so the idea is not just to to breathe it, but to dry it, mm-hmm. you know, so to keep your skin dry and and and, and all of that. So, um, I guess to answer your question, the difference between the performance hunting apparel poly and the athletic clothes cheaper academy brand polyester long sleeve camouflage shirt is they're they're night and day. They're not the same fabric. Mm-hmm. So. So, all right, so let's talk about patterns, right? So some of the performance stuff that I've seen, this Merino stuff, and let me preface something. I love Kuyu's patterns. I think they are ridiculous in Louisiana. You don't need to look like a rock face in Louisiana, okay? (laughs) That's not, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't need grays, light you know, olive greens and, and browns in a blotch pattern in a tree like Kuyu, what is it, Vias, I believe? That's a little... Uh, Verde. Is that Verde? Verde is the one that's got the big olive and gray and white blotches. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. I think. I don't remember. But the other one looks looks a little more digital camo-y. I can't remember. Um, Sitka, some of that too doesn't match very well. But at the same time, it doesn't... I don't really think camo patterns matter much. I don't. I, I tend to fall toward closer to like the real tree extra style. In fact, my problem is is some of my stuff is really faded out to where I, I look really light colored. I don't even look. That's natural. the biggest problem with cotton. Yeah, honestly, it fades out. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, yeah. I, I wore a um, today was uh, this morning was. It was like 55 this morning, and so I yeah. wore a really, really light jacket that's in Real Tree Extra, and then I wore my Real Tree Extra cotton pants that I wear on damn near every hunt, and it was like one looked like it was 30 years old, and one looked like I just broke broke it out of the package. Yeah, see, I, I have a ton of of uh, you know scent lock clothes. I'm I mean not I'm not saying a ton, but I have four or mm-hmm. five suits. Um, I had a pair of pants that I had for about three years, and I'm ridiculously ocd about washing my clothes so I, they get washed a lot mm-hmm. and i'm not in it for the the the, the carbon you wash effect. them and then you keep them in a bag yeah i'm stuff. not in it for the the carbon effect of it i just i like it because the stuff's durable and mm-hmm. i bought a jacket three years after i bought these pants and when i laid them on the table 
they look like they both came out the box together. That's that's good, why I huh? spend the money that I would spend on something like that. It's not about. I'm not worried about yeah. the scent control of the the, the product because. I mean, you know, they, just as well they, as I do, man, that's not going to help you fart or you burp. It, it, it ain't going to work. They fit. Well, it's it's that. And I've said from the go, when Scent Lock and, and uh, Scent Blocker and these companies first came out right. and I tried their clothes and someone, you know, you really think that works? No, but I really can tell you 100% they fit me better. They're mm-hmm. more comfortable mm-hmm. and they last longer. And when I wash them, they don't fade. They don't. And, you know, I, I, here, here's like a, a real obvious statement, mm-hmm. but I think it has so much truth. And this is coming from a guy who works for a camouflage company, okay? If the deer is looking at you close enough to determine whether the real tree, the mossy oak, the, the, the scree summit, or the Sitka Optifade, if they're staring at you well enough to determine if that camouflage pattern really blended in, you're in trouble already. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't matter what you're wearing. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the, the UV... Um, the faded and uh, you know the faded look the the, the way the, the 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 poly Teflon coated performance clothes holds up to UV over time and washing over time and all those kind of things that plays a bigger factor in con- in, in concealment as it pertains to camouflage than anything mm-hmm. and then the rest of it is like you said uh, it, it's it's not just um uh, one specific thing, but it's also you're paying for a piece of clothing that was designed, field tested to fit and wear for a hunter. It right. fits better. So, it fits you and it wears better. So I've got, I've got, an, uh, I guess, a good point that I'd like to make. And some people will agree with this. Some people won't. Some of the problems that I personally have, and this is only my opinion, with performance stuff is that you see a lot of people that have never killed a deer ever, ever, falling into the trap that you need $800 in performance gear to kill a deer. And my stance is that simply is not true. And I'm going to speak for y'all here. Both of you, from what you just said, my takeaway is that you got closer and closer and closer to what you hunt with now out of trial and error in comparison to things that didn't work or didn't last as long. And this is where you ended up. Y'all didn't start with a $500 three piece. Yeah, how many, how many pair of Walmart pants did my, you go through in your life? My mama, bro? Yeah, exactly. And they didn't yeah. fit me cause I'm short. No. Yeah. And so <laughs> we, my mama, my mama hemmed so many pairs of pants and took so the this waist is, in. This is my point is that we have gotten to a point and y'all actually have gotten there before I have, um, Y'all have gotten to a point where you are going to spend more on the forefront to have something that is quality that lasts longer that you, that you feel gives you confidence and that you can use for years to come, right? My issue is in the hunting industry today, you are almost led to believe that you need this stuff to kill an animal and that simply is not true. So the performance-based stuff is great for people that, you know, maybe – like if it, like if this was duck hunting, I don't know why I keep going back to this, but think of it as like, okay, I'm in the Pyro stage with my camouflage, right? I'm still paddling a Pyro wearing, you know, $10 Academy game winner pants, and I might spend some money on a decent jacket and some layers later in the season. Y'all are in the mud boots. <laughs> well, y'all are passing me. I, right? I agree with you from the marketing and sales. And and so, but 
pretty much everything that's being sold in the industry. I mean, what else? How else are you going to market it and sell it if you don't mm-hmm. try to convince people they need it to kill something? Mm-hmm. But so here's here's my uh, question or my response from that side of it. So if I'm talking to someone about buying a set of scree hunting gear, um, I am not as as a salesman and as an ambassador representative for scree. I'm not telling them they have to have to kill it, but my I'm also not approaching someone along the lines of what you're doing here with your bow, your camouflage, your tree stand choices and all that. I'm asking, I'm challenging you to make the most of your experience. I'm not challenging you to pick the best shopping cart that will kill something. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm telling you is get a bow that you enjoy shooting that fits you. Not the one your buddy told you was the best one. Get a stand that's comfortable that you're confident and comfortable sitting up on the side of a tree at 20 feet in. Buy clothes that you enjoy wearing that you're comfortable. Not that you suffer through and make yourself sit there long enough to see a deer, but that you you enjoy wearing them. They're the most comfortable thing you have. You know, boots. Don't go get a cheap pair of boots and suffer through a hunt Mm -hmm. because... They're uncomfortable when you hiked in, and now your your feet are freezing cold because they you know don't perform. And everything what I'm telling people is, look, it's 2018. None of us have to do this to survive. Mm-hmm. This is 100 percent a hobby. Now, yes, we feed our families. We love to cook what we eat, and there's awesome recipes, and that is a huge upside. But we don't have to do this. So, what I'm telling you is, if you're if you can, I'm not telling you don't become a hunter if you can't buy all the best stuff. But if you're, if you're capable of doing it and you're debating on, okay, am I going to spend $400 on this stuff that's going to last 18 months and it kind of fits me and I'll make do with it, or am I going to spend $700 on stuff that has a lifetime warranty that won't get wet when it rains, it truly blocks the wind, and it lasts 10 years? Mm-hmm. Spend $300 more and enjoy hunting season because that's what this is. It's a hobby. It's meant to enjoy. And, and don't, I, be, I, don't be scared to buy something used either, man. I, I told Kyler this on the phone, and I'm going to say it, and I told him I was going to use it. If I invite you over to a tailgate party at my house and you show up, and I've got metal folding chairs throughout the house, <laughs> and I've got a piece of plywood on sawhorses in the dining room, and i and you're like, dude, where's your chair and couch? Well, I don't need that. This works just fine. Works just fine. You can yeah. sit and watch the ball game, and you can go sit over there and eat your barbecue. And I don't, I don't need to spend money on a reclining chair. When I get ready to lay down, I'll go get in my bed. This metal chair works just no. I want to be able to sit back and enjoy watching yeah. television. I want to be able to sit at a nice dinner table and eat with my friends and family. So what do I do? I go buy nice things to enjoy. When I get in my truck and I go hunting and I grab my bow and or whatever else I'm going, you know, my, my shotgun to go duck hunting, I'm going to have a good time. I want to mm-hmm. be comfortable. I want to be confident. I want to enjoy myself. And I want to feel euphoric when I pull my stuff out of the bag. <laughs> I'm so glad I bought this. Well, this is awesome. We're, we're, also, we're also in a position, uh, maybe professionally or career-wise or just, you know, however you want to say it, where we can say – now, okay, I'm going to spend $300 on this, right? My point is, and this has been the hard thing for me to grow out of, I've, I have been, I'm not going to say poor, but I have been, there's not, I don't think I've ever had an excess of money, and nobody's ever, nobody's ever had an excess of money. But, but I have been in that situation where I'm either going to 
buy three arrows for this season and i don't know if i can afford luminox for them also you know what i mean and and i have to skimp on the broadheads to you know just because mm-hmm. you know, i'm the, the college student the guy that's mid, early 20s that's trying to get out of debt or or has or, you know has a jeep like i did just into every pocket that damn thing runs off hundred dollar bills you know it breaks every other day you know, when you don't have any extra money to put towards a $500 set of camouflage or a $300 stand, you know, you've got to be the frugal sportsman. And so my point is, is that we don't necessarily need this stuff to kill an animal. Mm-hmm. If that's if that's what you're believing in your head, that you need a $1,500 bow to kill a deer – it you have fallen hook line and sinker for it how many i know you have and how many people do you know that have bought a brand new bow geared it up and hunted and didn't kill a deer but bought another new bow the next year sold that one (laughs) more people than i can count yeah Yeah. year after year you know and well that goes back to the the like the you know the dopamine dopamine dump and the adrenaline it's the retail therapy it's because we actually we get the same level of excitement from buying something that's related to deer hunting as we do Making killing hunt, an yeah. animal you know yeah. it's the anticipation it's the adrenaline rush uh, that that's what it is spending $1800 is an adrenaline rush i think you know? if you cornered your average sportsman in a conversation the majority of them who found the financial means um to do it if you they're not doing it because they think they have to have it you know i agree with you that the the sales pitch is such and i don't know what the way around that is i know that in the industry in general if you get into a real conversation with someone you're not going to get that pitch you're going to get the the kind of conversation we're having now i realize the commercial is driven to, to 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 impulse you into feeling that way um that's retail in every in every facet of retail yep. and everything in, in the world um but i think the average guy i worked at Bowie's throughout two summers and two bow seasons and and while i wasn't a floor guy I, that wasn't my job i you know all hands on deck during the busy part of the year and i got to talk to a lot of people i learned a lot from that just about the hunter just general in general and most of the guys that bought a new bow every year they bought a new bow every year because they literally looked forward to it because they just it was euphoric to yeah. shoot that new bow and if and everyone would tell you man i i could i i could kill a deer with with last year's bow and the year before and the year before but man i just want that new bow yep. they looked forward mm-hmm. to the summer every year to get in there and get their hands on that new bow and everything about it and 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 you know again it goes back to it's not necessary you know you find a way to just get out there and hunt and enjoy the outdoors well let me ask you do you do you see it a lot and and i've i've taken notice into this where i know a lot of guys you know they change leases some guys might stay in a lease two or three years some guys might hang out for six seven years um and i've seen it where when you switch or some guys will drop a lease and go to a new place and it's almost like they're they want to walk in and show just how big their testicles are by what they have. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, is status. that, I mean, yeah, it's, it's status. a status, yeah. right. And you're walking in with the newest gear and that, the coolest yeah. stuff. And you want the guys yeah. there to, to, you know, to give you props I, for what you have. I don't think not anybody ever are. admits to that. So no, yeah. you it's, know, it's peacocking. Yeah. It's yeah. the, it's the hunting version of peacocking. And, and to me, the only, the, the only thing that's, 
this is my favorite thing on the planet. I love being in that situation with my kind of like, you could call it crap gear, if you yeah. want to call it, and being the guy that kills a deer yeah. for the day. You know, proving that it isn't about the stuff, it's about the hunter. Because that's what we get away from is the fact that like we buy things a lot of times to make up for what we feel our shortcomings are. Right. We buy th- that. It's the same thing with golf. Golf has been this way for decades. Why do you buy a new $500 driver every year? It's when you can hit last year's driver you, better than any you've ever owned. Yeah, right. so you're hoping it straightens out your slice. Well, spend $500 on golf lessons, fix yourself, save money on the equipment. But it's, you know, back to, back to that same analogy or back to that same example, excuse me, of, um, you know, buying things because you want to, but also almost feeling like you need, have to have a reason to buy it. Right. Because a lot of times have to, you're not, this isn't a single decision, single person decision that we make. A lot of times we have to have a reason for our our wives or our girlfriends, why we need to have a new bow. Well, it does this, it helps me with that. It's smoother this, my shoulder's bad or whatever. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we're, we're searching for something that corrects something that we don't want to correct in ourselves. Yeah. So let me, (laughs) I'm going to throw a little ice on the outdoor industry, uh, fire that we're, we're going through here. Okay. So. I obviously am not full-time in the outdoor industry, but I've been around it enough to, I think, be able to share this opinion, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. In case people, I can't wait. In <laughs> case people don't know, there's no such thing as a professional hunter. Yeah. Pro staff stands for promotional staff. That's what it stands for. So what we're talking about here and what everybody watches on television and they're now watching on YouTube, what we came up watching in the – the DVDs that came out every year, and then the Outdoor Channel that got on our cable subscription. And how many kids I have talked to at trade shows, man, how do you become a professional hunter? I want to be a professional. The only prof- – Jim Shockey might be a professional hunter. Mm-hmm. He might be. But this this sales pitch, what we, what we have is we have a smoke and mirror where we've convinced this large, impulsive audience that these guys are professionals. And so mm-hmm. what they're doing, you must do Emulate. to get closer to where they are. What they're doing, they could do with last year's gear, and you could also do if somebody would pay your way to put you where they're at. Now, and it doesn't mean that these guys aren't really good hunters, and anybody that gets to experience the outdoors as much as they get to experience it are going to learn something. They're going to get better at their craft. They are still shooting animals. They are still hanging tree stands. They are still learning while they go. But this, what you're talking about with this outdoor industry, specifically retail, where we've created this environment where we make people feel like they have to have this in order to be successful, it is the smoke and mirror in front of the audience where we've taken a bunch of guys that are car salesmen Mm -hmm. and made them basically Derek Jeter. They don't have a discernible talent. They're not the only guy that can play shortstop for the New York Yankees. They're just a guy who is really good at creating media and making you feel like you want to be him and you need what to do what he's doing and, and use what he's using mm-hmm. in order to be in that position. But let me tell you, you can't watch 250-inch deer fight and grunt them straight to you and kill them if you don't have access to hunt on a piece of property where two 150-inch deer are going to fight yeah. and be responsive and not be that's pressured. And, and that's what's happening. And so... 
the out, I'm in the outdoor film industry, and I'm going to sit here and tell you that what created this thing that you that you don't like is the outdoor film industry. It is, yeah. I know, and I and, and you know what I've I've got to admit I've never been, um, I've never been a big hunting show guy. I've never been a um, a big hunting video guy. I, I I've always been an outdoors guy. I was never inside long enough to watch a hunting show, right? And um, it was because I was trying to do it or I was fishing or I was trying to find a place to fish or trying to find a place to hunt. I never, I mean, the, I honestly think the last time I, I watched an entire outdoor show literally was with my grandfather and it was probably Bill Dance and he passed away when I was 11, which would be 1997. Okay. I just don't watch them. They aren't worth my time. I don't believe it. Um, very few of them, uh, are in realistic hunting situations that any of us listening or talking here would ever find ourselves in. It's very few and far between. Now, some of the guys that go on public land or DIY hunts or like go in blind type of stuff. That's the, I love that stuff. And that's mm-hmm. also the reason why I think Warren Womack is so popular is because he's relatable. He's local. He's close. He's hunting where we're hunting and he's being successful. Yeah. And he, so he isn't, you know, Warren Womack doesn't have any shows on him hunting Nebraska, yeah. you know, during the rut and all this stuff. It's that's all, the first ever video I ever watched was him. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think well, I was probably 14, so, 15 years old, I, and I watched the VHS of him. Uh, I feel like I, I should say this because I don't, you know, don't get me wrong. When What I just said, the vast majority of the people that I've ever been around or I have ever met who are industry icon status type people mm-hmm. are just like me and you. Yep. And they have roots just like us. But what I'm trying to say to debunk the sales pitch thing, to, 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 to bring it down to a level of those that have been influenced by it. Those guys aren't being paid to do the job because of how they hunt. They're paid because of how they're able to show it to you. Well, they're, they're influenced. And nobody goes out and puts a, a, a car out on the front, on the pedestal, that's not been washed, waxed, mm-hmm. and taken care of. So that what you, you know, need to The real I, hunter is the editor. Look, I, <laughs> that's the, it. I heard, I heard, I'm not going to say his name, but um, I, I was told this at the ATA show two years ago by a very popular person in the on the Outdoor Channel. And we were having a conversation, and this person said to me, uh, it was this kind of conversation, and they said, uh, you know, I don't mean this to sound one way or the other, but if you ask me to, I could make a television show about kindergarten, he said kindergarten books, mm-hmm. and I could make it the best kindergarten book TV show ever. And basically, and, and he, was, he was saying it out of humility. He was saying, I, I mean, I have access to hunt in great places, and I have a lot of time to do it. But what I'm good at is making TV. That's yep. why I get paid. That's what I meant. Because if, if, yeah, if, if somebody was... wrote me a check to go make a TV show for kindergartners and sell them books, I could I could make a, you know, I don't remember exactly how he put it, but it was something very basic. And that's what it is. And, and, and so I think as outdoorsmen, when we're talking about this and we're talking about gear, you, I mean, you, you need to understand that we're all, I think, at this point as adults, most of us have been through the car buying experience, yeah. right? We know what that's about, and yeah. we expect it, and we guard ourselves for it. We still enjoy 
being able to go buy a new vehicle. As much as we hate dealing with that sales process, there's still that. When you drive home in that new truck, what's the first thing you do? You get out and you look at it in the driveway before you walk inside, right? (laughs) There's still that feeling. And I think this is the same thing. You've got to pick what you need and what you want and what's right for you. And you've got to enjoy enjoy getting to see a really good camera guy and a really good personality show you God's creation Mm -hmm. in a spectacular way. And just understand they're just doing their job, mm-hmm. you know. They're, they're, they're a lot of times they're. It's about being influencers, right? And that obviously is going to relate to a product or a series of products or something like that. And there's I don't I don't there's nothing wrong with that. I just uh, my my stance is is not everything that they show or everything that you see you have to have to kill a deer i mean people we 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 really complicate this exactly and 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 one of the things one of the the, uh, items i have written down here for us to talk about is actually broadheads and i'm not going to get into specifics here i two years ago went to fixed blades um, and I was having trouble with um, penetration on mechanicals. I was shooting a forward-deploying three-blade mechanical. It wasn't a Grim Reaper. I think it was a, um, it was a Wasp jackhammer. It was one of the first mm-hmm. mechanicals yep. in the 90s that came out. And the problem I was having was I was shooting a super-fast bow, but I was shooting a really light arrow, so I was losing my momentum. And, um, and so I was I went on my caribou hunt. I went to fixed blades for that, and I didn't kill anything. I didn't even shoot. Well, I shot a grouse, which is like a $40 bird because I never found that arrow. But um, when I got back, I had all these fixed blades, three blades left over. And so I was like, well, I'll use these up for the season. And, you know, I have been hunting with them for three. This is my third season with them now. And I've decided that I would rather have two medium-sized holes than one big big hole. I, I think that the number one thing that people need to hear from somebody is when you make this decision, you need to just focus on what flies the best and what you need to focus on your accuracy and quit yeah, worrying say, about worry about where you hit and because not worry about all what of all of this quote unquote innovation and all of this um, radical impact um, cut and whole all this stuff with the broadhead industry look if you shoot a deer right with anything on the market it's going to die it cannot live without its lungs period and i i I, this is just this is is as timeless a truth as we can deliver on this podcast if you focus your arrows and your broadheads on accuracy and the right fit for your bow and how you shoot and you know that within your given range whatever you're comfortable shooting that you can hit a deer and double lung it, and you're going to take the right shot, and you're going to look. It's over, and it doesn't matter if it is a the cheapest, cheap, cheapest, cheapest Walmart brands I got out there, or yeah. if it's the the most expensive, cut on impact, extreme, whatever. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Inversely, I don't care how good the broadhead is. I don't care how well it's field tested. If it's a marginal shot, it's fifty fifty at that point. And if you're depending on a broadhead cutting so dramatically that it makes up for your wrongdoings, mm-hmm. you're approaching this all wrong. So when it comes to the th- this, when it that you need to focus on shooting what flies well, what what is ac- whatever that means for you, 
That needs to be your focus because there's never been a deer shot through both lungs that lived. Never. Well, Not one ever. Let and me tell you Let me tell you <laughs> one of my favorite things about the broadhead topic, and this is just anything that people are passionate about. Um, I love sitting back and watching internet conversations on people that ask, hey, what's a good broadhead? We see that. I, I mean, it's My answer is like, always Toyota. Toyota is yeah. a good product. Like it, different, like it matters. <laughs> um, it, but, but here's my thing is that I love the people that just spout out something and they have no reason why. None. In fact, their selling point at that point in time is you should shoot this because I do. And then, well, why do you shoot it? Well, because I shoot it. Well, why do you shoot it? Because it's the best. You know what this reminds me of? The, mood, the movie Idiocracy. It's like, well, Brondo's got electrolytes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brondo has what plants, what plants crave, right? right. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an argument for or against anything. If you just type RAGE in all caps with five exclamation points, that isn't a selling point. I just want to clarify that. Now, if you come out and like, and I always try to do this, I'll say, first of all, you need to buy something that fits your setup. So if you're shooting a light arrow or a a low poundage bow or something that you have a super uh, short draw length or something like that, mechanicals might not be your friend. Okay. If you don't have the ass to push that arrow through the deer, then try to stay away from the biggest, baddest one out there. But at the same time, you don't necessarily need to to have, you know, a a fixed blade either. You know, there are mechanicals, certain types of mechanicals that work better than others. But my point is choose something that works for you. And my other point here is that if you're really, really worried about it, please don't listen to some stranger on the Internet about it. Exactly. Go to your bow shop. Talk to your bow tech that tunes your bow, that knows you have it set at 52 pounds at a 27-inch draw. Do not buy a two and a half inch cut forward deploying, you know, broadhead. That's not what you need. Yeah, I think the one thing that we have to say in in the follow of this is there are some there are some broadheads out there, whether it be because they're in the they're being used incorrectly, or whether it be because this is one of those circumstances where. too much is too much. I mean, there's you know we're we're actually going backwards with innovation. Yeah. There are broadheads out there that if you ask me in person, I would tell you don't shoot them because I've seen now the deer died. Oh, I'll yeah. go back. I'm not I'm not backing up. The deer died and it died within a hundred yards. But retrieving the deer was a nightmare because the broadhead didn't perform very well, mm-hmm. and and the shot that was made should have produced a better blood trail and maybe that deer wasn't found till the next day mm-hmm. and the meat spoiled. Or maybe it was just simply a, a, a you know a long two hour search to find a deer that was laying eighty yards. I've had both of those happen to me twice this year, so I have an opinion about that. But nevertheless, the point still remains: both of those deer were shot through both lungs. Both of them died within a hundred yards. So that point remains. But we would be remiss not to say, do your homework as well, because there's a lot of crap out there on the market mm-hmm. that. Look, yes, if you double lung the deer or you make a, a hard shot, or you, if you make a good shot on a broadside deer and you go through the vitals, he's going to die. Now, whether the performance is what you're looking for, I mean, if you hunt in the Felicianas, for, let's say East Feliciana, where there's a lot of thick woods, you know, the deer might die within 100 yards and you might not find it for two days mm-hmm. because the, the broadhead didn't, didn't create the kind of blood trail. Yep. You know, so you need to do your homework there, but... but you need to weed through some of the noise, I think, 
because there are a lot of stuff that either won't work with your setup or just simply not a great design but just good marketing um but generally speaking so chad what what broadheads do you shoot i'm a 100 grain grim reaper grim reaper what yeah. what what, what two inch, inch white tail two inch the white tail special is that what it's called yeah so how'd you land on that uh One of the first deer that I ever shot was with a Thunderhead, 100 grain Thunderhead. And I watched a deer run off and I never found a deer. It was a, it was a poor shot, high in the back. Um, so I just totally had zero confidence in it. It wasn't me, it was the broadhead, of course. Mm-hmm. So I switched and went to a mechanical. And I think we were shooting the, uh, it was an inch and a quarter cut. Um, it wasn't the wasp. It, it's, it's something similar to what the Grim Reapers are. A vortex, maybe, uh, or or uh, uh, no, a Spitfire. 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 Yeah, yeah I think yeah, it was. I can't so I shot those for several years, and then the rage came out. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, man, I hate to say it, dude. I, I bought a pack. I was all about it's it. It's not drugs. But I mean, you know, dude, up it's until not, that point, yeah. Well, they've been it out, like it's heroin. I, well, <laughs> look, up until that point, they this was when they first came out, the very first set that they ever had. Yeah. Um, I shot a doe at 34 yards, and I literally watched the arrow bounce off of this deer. It sounded like I walked up to her with a two-by-four and hit her. And I hit her in the shoulder. Uh, it, it wasn't a perfect behind-the-shoulder shot. But to me, I mean, it literally hit the deer and bounced straight back. Really? Yes. I saw it with my if, – yeah. if I'd have never said anything bad about a broadhead, that's what happened to me. And so I, I said, man, I'm never shooting these again. Never. <laughs> and I switched over to the Grim Reaper. They had just come out too. And uh, Jay uh, was working over at Bowie's. Jay James was at mm-hmm. Bowie's at that time. And he, he's like, man, these came out, and I know these are what's up. And so I started – just like what you said, I went to the pro shop and I, I started. I asked my pro, uh, the guy that was working on my bow, what's going on, and he. That's when he pointed out the Grim Reaper to me, and dude, I'm th- I haven't looked back since. Yeah, yeah. ever. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Locke? <laughs> so you I shoot, shoot the same thing, but yeah. um, I shot the Whitetail Specials because I. I don't know. They came out with them. I shoot the razor tip, the hundred grain razor tip, uh-huh. uh, Grim Reaper, and I did shoot the Whitetail Specials, and I. I shot them up, and they performed exactly to the standard. The thing of that the I like tips. about them is that the blades are so long. I think they yeah. flex more and can go yeah. between the, okay. the so ribs a little bit. That's what I, my philosophy behind here's, it. Here's my so as a as a kid or a youth shooting youth bow, I shot the uh, wasp, the three blade wasp, whatever it's a j- it was, jack hammer. jack hammer maybe with the O ring. Uh, it wasn't a mechanical. It was oh, a fixed blade. Oh, wasp, okay, I got you. Uh, something. Anyway, I mean, it was a long time ago. I shot that. And when I got to be, when I graduated from a youth bow to an adult size bow, I shot Muzzy, 100 grain, just the Muzzy, yeah. Trocar, or what mm-hmm. is it, Trocar? I don't mm-hmm. know, the, the big head, the same head the Grim Reaper has. Yeah. Okay? We're going to circle back to that. So I shot the Muzzy, and devastating. I made a few bad shots and didn't find deer, but I knew I made bad shots. Mm-hmm. You know, every shot that I made that was even marginally good the muzzy performed and it was great so i got a little older and the bows got a little faster and i got a little busier and i started having more and more trouble keeping 
you know, the tuning the and getting and, of them. Yeah. Look, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Muzzy can't be tuned. There's going to be, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You know, I, I know it could be. Here's what it comes down to is I got married, started having kids. I started working a lot more, mm -hmm. and I didn't have time, and I started looking for an in-between. I was working at Bowie's with Jay, <laughs> and we bought Grim Reaper yeah. at, at ATA the first year I was there. And I get to look at him. Me and Jay are looking at him. We're both like, the first time we've ever seen him, we're like, look at this. It's got a muzzy head, but it's got a Spitfire type. Yeah, and, yeah. and then it's got this spring. This thing looks cool. And I hunted on the river where there were a lot of pigs. And I'm like, well, I don't know exactly how we're fixing <laughs> to find out how good this thing works. <laughs> so um, that's how I started shooting them. That was in 2000, let me lie to you, seven maybe. Six mm -hmm. well, it was the first year. Yeah. It was the first year Bowie's had Grim Reaper, and, and I think it was the first year Grim Reaper was, you know, right. at the buying show, like big, big time out there. So I bought them, and I have not shot a deer with anything but them since. Really, and I have killed eight or nine bucks over two hundred and fifty pounds, three of them over forty yards. I've killed probably fifty something pigs, mm -hmm. and I have. Uh, no dev issues. devastating no issues. absolutely devastating now i've been fortunate enough that um and i'm saying fortunate enough because this is gonna happen if you hunt uh, i've not made any bad shots you know mm -hmm. I've, I've i've not to say i've missed a deer or two um in this time frame but all the shots i've made have been good shots and um i think personally for me that this is not an engineering type of uh, comment. This is just a very logical to me, and at least in the way I think. That razor tip on the front of that Grim Reaper, and then the way it deploys its blade, it marries the penetration and the punishing power of a muzzy, which in my opinion is the best there is. The muzzy three blade, if you can fly it, is the best there is. It marries that with the, the advantages of the mechanical. I can shoot faster and harder without worrying about planing, without having to, mm -hmm. you know, worry about the tuning issues. And, um, like I said, I mean, I've, I've just, I, right before that, right before that, when I was going through maybe a two-year period of my bow was shooting faster and the muzzies were all of a sudden. Now, what I did was I started shooting a heavier arrow with bigger fletchings and, trying to marry the i was trying to find that in between the, the speed combo, yeah. and and make it work right and i was still able to shoot a lot so i was making it work but i was struggling with it um i started trying some different things rage was one of them now i shot a few 90 pound does right through the behind the shoulder and the rage cut them wide open and they bled like a, you know like like they're supposed to but i also shot a couple of deer that I can tell you unequivocally, hands down, I have shot in Missouri, Kansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, made the exact same shot with a Grim Reaper and a Muzzy, and absolutely destroyed them dead within 100 yards, shot them with a Rage, and they did not even go in past the insert. Really? That happened to me twice, and I threw them literally into the Mississippi River, <laughs> and I will never shoot them again. And I've also experienced that happen to other people I was in camp with. And again, I'll say this, and I'm trying my best not to sound like a backtracker. If you're shooting a rage and it's properly aligned with your equipment and you make a good shot, it is going to cut and it is going to bleed and it is going to do its job and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, in my humble opinion, there are better options all the way around. But, again, 
if that's what shoots good and makes you confident and you make good shots with it, you're going to kill deer and you're going to find mm-hmm. them. But so, I do shoot the Grim Reaper, and I highly recommend it. So what it came down for me was um, once, once I moved to fixed blades, I, I, I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to mechanicals. Um, the, the confidence that I picked up and moved into a fixed blade coming from mechanicals, I had struggled with a few different mechanicals. I had had, um, I had, had some penetration problems with my wasp jackhammers, which a wasp jackhammer was, I believe, the original mechanical. No, the Vortex was the original the, mechanical. What was it? The, the Vortex, I can remember I was maybe eight or nine years old. I was just old enough to shoot a bow where I could get it back like between 35 and 40 pounds and mm-hmm. my dad would let me hunt with it. And we were at Homer Hewitt's archery shop in Faraday, Louisiana. Cause <laughs> it's I grew, still open. Because I grew up yeah. in Natchez. And um, I can remember my dad went and bought the very first. Who Nat- made it? Vortex. Okay. I, I, I've never um, seen it. Then. Matthew's Ultralight. Okay. He bought that bow and Homer had these are the look at this thing, you know, this is the first thing. <laughs> and it you know, it the Vortex still makes a broadhead and it's kinda similar but they've modified and it it you know, it it front deploys, but it's got the O ring that slides up. I mean it's not that much different than a Schwacker, to be honest with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Schwacker has a the, the the shape of the blade and the way it flips open is a little bit different. But the way it lays in there and the way the o-ring slides up and 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 it's got shoulders more or less that yeah. push the o-ring back yeah, yeah that was the original vortex system and my dad bought them he didn't let me shoot them because homer even said look this kid's bow you can't shoot this you know but for my dad um i remember he got them and my brother-in-law got them and they shot some deer with them and um good shots were blood trails we've never seen before marginal shots any kind of rib cage any kind of shoulder the, the penetration issues um, and then the next year, you started seeing more and more mechanics. They were, I, I, I might be wrong, but at least in my little neck of the woods growing up in Natchez, Mississippi, they were the first mechanical broadhead available hmm. um, retail. They came out right around like when the Rockets came out, too, because I shot Rocket, the little mini blasters. Mm-hmm. I shot those for several years, and I had real good success with those. Those were pretty devastating little broadheads. Well, I, so when I, when I found the Wasp drones, which is what I hunt with now, that is, um, it's similar to a muzzy. It has the, um, you know, it's not like a, a striker where the whole thing is a blade and it comes to the single point at the front. You have that kind of entrance point that's maybe three-eighths of an inch long, and then you have the blades, but the, the blades are real short blades compared to the old muzzy MX-3s and MX-4s and stuff. Those were a little longer. Um, and for me... I, I believe that a, the shorter the blade is on um, on uh, a fixed blade, the less it will guide the front of the arrow, right? And and I also, by the way, if you're having trouble with like tuning fixed blades to your bow, it's most likely because your bow is not perfectly paper tuned and shooting darts. That's that is. Uh, step number one is make sure your bow is tuned perfectly. Bring it to a professional in your local archer shop. Let them paper tune it for you and then work back from there because a lot of people are shooting. They move to mechanicals that, that quote-unquote shoot like field points because it doesn't interfere with their aero flight from a mistune or unaligned bow. And that's, you know, we need to say that that is problem number one. If you can't get your field points, sorry, if you can't hit your, get your broadheads to hit where your field points are, it's not the broadhead. It is your bow and your arrow. Um, but uh, so I went to the wash drones and I 
two things. It's not going to fail. There's nothing to not open, right? There's nothing that's going to, going to, you know, snap or, well, actually I've only broken one blade on them and that was on my, my big 10 point that I killed a few years ago. Um, but I've lost one blade out of, I want to say 11 deer that I've shot with it. And I don't have any penetration problems anymore through and through. I have not had an arrow not zip through a deer since I've switched. Whereas I can remember when I was shooting mechanicals before, your arrow, doesn't matter if it's forward deploying, rear deploying, I don't care what it is, you are giving up some of the momentum of your arrow to the functionality of that broad head opening. It is, that is undeniable. If it opens, it is robbing, might be a it's little a parachute. bit. It's a parachute. It's a parachute. It's also, it's parasitic in the way that it steals the energy from the arrow to open the broadhead, mm-hmm. right? Now, the most parasitic is uh, a forward-deploying broadhead, like the Grim Wheat Reapers, because those have to, it has to hit, you know, if you've got the skin of the deer, you have the arrow penetrating by the tip first, and then the, and then the blades hit, and then they have to fold all the way backwards and then keep going forwards. That's the most momentum-robbing style. doesn't matter what brand it is. If it, if it opens from the front to the back, it robs energy. The most the most efficient mechanical is a rear deploying, like a Rage or a, um, NAP has another one that opens similar. It's not the Spitfire. I can't remember. That's a forward deploying also. Is it a Schwacker one? Sh- Schwacker is kind of a – it's an in-between. You have – so by the time a Schwacker opens, the front of the blades are already inside the deer because the – opening you can call them like the tabs the oh, wings that's right. it kind of flips the wings confident. catch on that's the back right. side of the blade and then it and then it opens technically inside the deer right yeah. because it it can't the blades can't deploy until it hits the tabs and the tabs or the wings are behind the the leading uh, edge yes, of, right. of the blades you know what i mean yeah. um and so you know those are very devastating broadheads but all broadheads are devastating Every one of them. Yeah. It does not matter if you put it where it has to go. This, this comes back to us versus gear. If you, you, there is no product that can overcome poor decision making and human error or lack of skill. There's not one out there. Period. Mm-hmm. I can literally tie, tie. Yeah, tie. I could literally put flint napped sinew attached broadhead onto a carbon arrow and if i put it behind a deer's shoulder in its double lung area that that i can get that shot it will die i could take this pin i could put this pin on the end of an arrow if i hit it in the right spot it won't bleed but it'll die you know and so you know we overthink this a lot because like i said we we're trying to make up for something that's either a shortcoming, something that we wish we could do better that we wish we had better performance but regardless of what we're hunting with um, if you do your part, the deer will die. It ne- never has, well, I'm not going to say never. I have had broadheads not deploy. And I'll just go ahead and say it. I think G5 T3 broadheads are the worst broadheads on the planet. I have lost four deer to those broadheads. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's because they didn't die, but it's because I know for a fact they did not open because they went out the other side the same way they went in. And I never found those deer because there was no blood trail to follow whatsoever. Hmm. And I will forever have that experience. And I hate to say it. Anybody out there shooting T3s, if I was 
was your friend, I'd tell you, don't shoot him anymore. You're just setting yourself up for. And they have nothing to do with T3 game. <laughs> oh <box>. yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what's it. Yeah, the G, G5 T3, it is a rear-deploying little broadhead. But the other problem I had with them, I had two of them break because it was pressed metal back about three years ago. It's that 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 um, cheap, it's like pot metal almost. Yeah, casted. Um, casted, pressed, powdered yeah, metal. Like carbon. And I had two of them break at the point of entry at the ferrule. The ferrule stayed in the arrow. The broadhead never found it. It wasn't in the deer. It was just gone. Um, and, uh, so, I mean, that's, that's my only bad experience with a broadhead. I've never shot rage typically because I, if everybody's running in a certain direction, I'm generally going to walk in a different direction. That's just how I am. Um, and I've never gotten on that bandwagon. I've never shot a deer with a rage. I do love to rib jab my friends that shoot them just because <laughs> it's fun, right? The tallest tree catches the most wind. Um, is that why but, you're not getting in a tree saddle? I, yeah, man, that's another thing we can talk about. Teresa, I still think that's a fad. I think that's good for some people. I don't think it's good for the majority. But that's a great that's a great point. Is the tree saddle like these things aren't new? No, yeah. <laughs> Guido's web has been around for twenty years. Yeah, you know, I know. Um, and so and that's, that was what I was referring to. I mean, people think that it's the latest and greatest thing, and I've seen so many people just praising the glory of the tree saddle. I'm like, man, I've seen guys hunting in that. 15 years ago yeah. man these guys have been doing this forever it, well it's it's been i guess it's the same thing as some of the a hunting apparel market has gone in these directions of of certain things that if you go back and look at the way we tried to block wind and wick moisture with some of the tactical and military stuff they've been using wool maybe yeah. not as it now like again these companies have went out and spent time and money you know to make it the best fit and the and the most applicable for hunters but they're using concepts that have been in play for clothing on the human body for a long time Mm -hmm. by the military they're just they're just bringing it down to an application that fits the hunter and the same thing can be said about um a lot of this other stuff is you know you're just re-engineering concepts and Honestly, we're kind of at the point here where is there anything new under the sun? Everything is going to be a re-engineered concept of some kind, just about. Yeah. In 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 our in what we're talking about here, I mean, what what you know. So we let's move on to a different topic here, and this is one that uh, I don't know. I I I legitimately don't know if y'all have used it or not. Um, but we get a lot of questions about this, and I see these questions all the time. Have y'all ever hunted with an Ozonix? I have. I don't own one, but I have filmed in a tree with hunters using them a bunch. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've been in a tree with Chad, one. you never hunted with one? Nope. That's just something i got to carry in the woods. <laughs> there is True. no way, Chad. Unless yeah, they find no. a way he can, like, mount it permanently. If I stick and, it in the stain, it's staying in there, bro. <laughs> I'm going to put a solar charger on it, man. <laughs> so, so um, I, you know, I'm unaffiliated with them. I've had one. I actually sold my Ozonics. Because I made one before I had one, and I thought that the one that I made out of parts off the internet that cost me about a hundred bucks worked just as good mm-hmm. as the three to four hundred dollars. I'm not against trying it, and and so here's I'm not gonna we're not gonna talk for a long time on this because it's a pretty simple topic. But 
If you're wondering if an Ozonics works or what it does, an Ozonics is an insurance policy. It does not make you invisible. It does not replace scent control. It does not give you this invisibility cloak for scent that a deer will never know that you're in the area. It does put off a scent. It smells like metallic electronic air is what it smells mm-hmm. like it is a very distinct smell if you've ever smelled ozone or or been a part of a maybe a disaster relief or or they're trying to um get a smell out of an apartment or a house something like that they have these ozone units that are massive compared to an ozonics but it's the same principle it is essentially i think uh, i hate to sound like a commercial here i think that it is um bonds with your odor it scent? Bonds, it bonds right. with, with the molecule and destroys it. it destroys Oxygen them. destroys yeah. it. Um, and so here's what I'll say. I have never killed a deer. Sorry, I've never killed a giant buck because of my ozonics. I have, without a doubt, multiple times had my machine running or the real ozonics running. They have another one out now called Oz. Um I have had deer downwind, and I have never, ever been busted with it on. I have never left the woods feeling as if it hurt me. I've never felt as if it was a reason why I didn't kill something. But I have multiple times had deer that have come behind me or downwind, and they have not busted while I was running the machine. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've killed a 180 because of my ozonics. That would just be, you know, hype and me, me lying to you. But the reality is in South Louisiana, sometimes we go into woods, in the woods, and as Harmon Carson says, we are a human-flavored scent wick by the time we climb up in our stand. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, it's 80, it was 77 degrees today, and this is at the end of October. And there's sometimes, depending on how far you walk, you have to, you will sweat by the time you get up there and you will stink by the time you're done hanging a stand. And I will tell you that if I know that I'm going to be hunting a swirling wind or if I have some, a, a place where I just don't know where the deer are coming from and I don't know, you know, I don't know which direction I need to be like protected on from wind direction, I'll bring it. And I have never had it hurt me. Now, this is my machine. If you, I have a YouTube video on it. I didn't show how to make it. But if you just Google DIY homemade Ozonics, I think it's got like 20,000 views now. But it's a Pelican case, an Ozonic with a trans... I'm sorry, um, ozone generator, a little transformer. And it runs off of a, um, like a, a LiPo battery, 12-volt uh, LiPo battery. And a little fan switch and on and off switch and all that stuff. But I've never had it hurt me, ever. And I know a lot of people that swear by it, they, they throw out those real definitive statements. But i got to tell you, from my experience, and I've had a lot of deer within range with it on, and I have never, ever had it blow me, or blow, blow, blow my hunt. I have, I, I haven't, you know, made a point to do side-by-side testing, but I can tell you just off the top of my head, I had... I had hunts earlier this year, 90 degrees, on a place where you can get away with more than other places. Mm-hmm. You know, just a, a really good place, not a lot of pressure. Um, I had hunts in a four-day window early October where the Ozonics was running and big mature deer downwind should have smelled us, didn't. Coincidence, maybe. Ozonics, I then maybe. had... <laughs> A morning hunt where 
got in the stand the wind wasn't really what we thought and every deer now the deer got within bow range but every deer once they got in our thermals they didn't blow they didn't blow up they but they obviously smelt us and they obviously left i hunted the same tree on the last day with a different hunter who didn't have an ozone ozonics and had deer and mature bucks shot on camera that came from downwind and so <laughs> and, and see, i can't like I, I, I refer that to my my dead the dead downwind spray now the the the, the sprays that there's so many out there that mm-hmm. do so much stuff now i'm a firm believer in it because i've had deer downwind of me that i've killed now did they know i was there did they smell something yeah but it camouflaged me just enough. I think that's that's it's the whole the, trick behind it. It's just all of enough it. to give me that edge to I could put an arrow. They weren't going to sit there and feed like I was never there. They yeah. knew something yeah, was so, up. Yeah, so I mean, you but think about it gave it like me this. Edge. Think about I think everything when it comes to calling, when it comes to stand placement, when it comes to do I hunt after a deer runs off, do I not hunt after a deer blows at me? You know, all these things. When it comes to all of that, let's just think about it like this. You cannot apply human thought process to a white-tailed deer. He doesn't mm-hmm. think like you, and he doesn't make decisions mm-hmm. like you. So, with that being said, I live out in the country. There are deer in my yard. I have a 110-pound bulldog that very rarely ever gets a bath, <sighs> and he lays on the front porch, and he doesn't bother the deer too much, but if they get too close, he'll bark at them, and we'll, you know, those deer undeniably because they i see deer in my yard on a weekly basis and they are as close to me as many deer that i observe in the woods that i'm hoping get in bow range or pass by just out of bow range they're just as close they undeniably can smell me now that deer is not smart enough to know the difference between me standing in my driveway and me standing on the side of a food plot Mm -hmm. i'm just that same dude Mm -hmm. and i'm just a, 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 a i'm an entity in their world right so to me, the, when we break this down to scent, what this comes down to is the deer, in my mind, I'm, I'm speaking like I'm a scientist, but this is just what I think, and this, is, you know, and this is based off of what I've observed over the years. The deer measures the amount of danger he's in in a lot of ways, and scent is one of the major ways. Mm-hmm. How I think a deer recognizes his environment, how close you are, etc etc where things come from and some of that's learned behavior that deer in your yard's used to smelling you yes the deer in the food plot's not used to smelling you yes but when it comes to scent control when it comes to whether you're masking it with a spray you're covering it with a natural scent or you're trying to kill it with ozone what you i think what people have to take into consideration what i don't think they need to take i think they need to take it to heart what you're doing is you're trying to trick the deer just enough to give you a shot because you're not going to fool him Mm -hmm. and you're not period if you can if you can eliminate or cover your scent enough that he doesn't realize that you're actually 20 yards away and about to shoot him it's the product's done its job if the if the if the thermal not the wind but the thermal goes in his direction Mm -hmm. he is going to smell you god made him that way every time 100 percent of the time he's going to smell you Mm -hmm. now whether he realizes is you're 20 yards away or not is the difference between you getting a shot and him blowing your hunt right and i that's what i firmly believe and i take it to my grave and and that's that's to me where the ozonic things comes in breaks down for me when I, where i don't really understand is if it i know that deer have smelt me through it 
I know it. I've watched it. So I don't I don't know if there is a difference between how the human nose reacts to these scent molecules that have been affected by the ozone as opposed to the deer or is there's some way it has to, it, an effective way of using it because if it's if it's literally attaching itself to scent molecules and killing them then technically there's nothing to smell right yeah well i think it just it just changes what the scent molecule is it you know maybe in a, a the library of scents in a deer's head that knows roughly what a human smells like and when it's combined with ozone it doesn't recognize that if that makes sense yeah. kind of like does not compute therefore doesn't know how to react um, and so that goes back to why I said it's an insurance policy. It doesn't make you invisible. People, they, they would love for you to think it makes you invisible. That's a lot of money in their pocket if they could do that. But the reality is, is that it um, oftentimes gives you that little extra 10 seconds, 5 seconds, 30 seconds that you need for that deer to get in position for you to kill it. Let me know, another thing I want to say that you just said, and you, you can listen to me and think I'm a raging lunatic or you can believe me I, I don't care but this is what i think and and i think it plays big into how we decide to buy gear or not to buy gear i don't think a deer pays nearly as much attention to everything that we think they pay attention to when they smell you they smell you they mm-hmm. don't smell taco bell they don't smell your <clears throat> truck i mean if they smell those things in a certain environment they might not like that in other environments they might not pay attention what spooks a deer is your skin. What spooks him is you. Mm-hmm. You're well, also, a predator. Also, too, all the, 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 the scents that are offered as cover scents, the mm. vanilla sprays and the acorn scents and the this scent and the that scent. I'm like, my theory is, how many times have you walked in the woods and smelt vanilla? And smelt that ever? Any, yeah. any of that smell? I'd rather smell like nothing. I don't. I, and I that's, think, and that's I my think point behind just, it. I, I think you try to be clean. Yeah. You obviously don't want to go in the woods with clothes you just spilt diesel or gas on. But generally speaking, what you need to focus on is you. Don't I mean, worry. I got caught up yeah. into those little earth scent wafers years yeah. and years ago when they came out, and I, and I got to thinking about. It, I was like. I don't stick my nose that close to the ground to ever see if I can smell I this you're, smell. Yeah, you're exa- it, the same way we do with calling. Yeah. yeah. The deer does smell that, but you're exaggerating it, and that's what we do with our gear. Yeah. We exaggerate it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have we've gone on for almost two hours <laughs> once again uh, on our, our uh, tangents and side stories and, and experiences, and, and that's, that's beautiful because that's what, that's what the podcast is. And, again – I love the fact that we're not all sitting here agreeing on stuff. Yeah, it's, not, it's not a brand bash by all means. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's not a brand bash. It's not. It's also, um, you know, not necessarily um, a push for a certain brand or against another brand. Um, these are, I think, a lot of the people listening right now will have a lot of the same experiences as we've we've had, or maybe they will in the near future, and they'll remember us talking about this stuff with certain products. But um, what it's about is. You know, ultimately, buy what gives you confidence that you can't afford, right? And that what you feel makes you um, more of a, an effective hunter and try and figure out, you know, what can be weeded out, what isn't necessary, what's the essentials and what's the impulse buy, right? Um, but, uh, you know, it's a great conversation tonight. I, uh, we, you know, we had a sheet of paper in front of us with a couple of topics from camo to boots to ozonics and deer sense and 
broadheads and cover synths and sights and stabilizers. And we got to most of them. We didn't get to some because, you know, trying to keep it under two hours here. But, um, you know, we, the, we, we can always do more. <laughs> right? there, there's always more podcasts. There's always next week. So do you all have anything else to add before we uh, sign off? I, d- I just hope people take away from it that, like you said, that we are on both sides of it. I- I'll tell you that on on my side of it, I'll tell you if you can afford to be impulsive, be impulsive because buying things supports this industry, and this industry mm-hmm. does do a lot for your rights as a hunter. I mean, um, it really does. So if you can afford it, don't get in, don't do any of this just to kill something. Because if you do, you're not going to be a good fellow hunter. You're not going to be. Um, you're not going to be doing a lot of things the right way with that kind of attitude. So don't take the impulse thing as a total negative. That's, that's really the only thing I want to say in closing. Is impulsive is not negative unless you're going out and running up a credit card. Hey, don't do that. Yeah, you don't know, go into debt to kill a deer. Yeah, no, don't do no. that. And, and don't do anything just to kill a deer. Do this because to enjoy it. Enjoy the outdoors and enjoy it and and know that you're taking part in something that's that's wholesome and good and, and take it for what it is and do the best you can with it. Yep. Chad, yeah. you got anything else? Man, I... I, I I, I'm a firm believer in just don't believe the internet. I mean, I mean, and I, I hate to put it like that, but you know, there's so many professional unprofessionals out there that you know people just need to realize. I'm 45 years old. My bow is five years old. My arrows are probably clicking on 10 years old. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm shooting a 10 year old arrow, but I'm shooting the same brand. Yeah. You know, like I've I've been there, done that spent the money lost the deer but i know it works you know and 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 that's what it really all boils down to i mean i'm i'm still hunting in a three-year-old pair of lagrange lacrosse boots Mm -hmm. man you know i don't have the latest and greatest stuff but but i kill deer and i enjoy the heck out of you know well i'm gonna leave y'all with this because i'm really glad that we did this episode this week because we just released our newest product for Louisiana mm. bow hunter, the sticks. If you've seen the infomercial and it is an infomercial to the maximum, the sticks is a joke. It's a parody on dumb stuff in the hunting world. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily like to explain why things are funny, <laughs> but if you haven't seen the video, it's on Facebook. It's called the sticks, uh, and the sticks XL, which is a log, um, but it is essentially us pretending to sell, and we will sell them to you. Yeah, they are give on, us nineteen ninety five. Yeah, we'll sell they you. They are <laughs> on the internet. They Send are on our website. I will mail it to you if you buy them. I promise you, you will have a piece of. You want to talk about the history. best white white elephant gift, man? Man, and so what? this literally is three sticks, like twigs. That you would find no, in the woods. It, you bought two and you got one free. Oh, it's <laughs> two. It's buy two get one free. Um, that is in clamshell packaging with marketing uh, backing. Uh, you know, um, uh, advertisement backing on it. Uh, but we made an infomercial um, about the versatility of sticks, and we're pretending to sell them because of some of the ridiculousness, uh, some of the ridiculous products that are in the hunting industry these days. This is kind of our jab at it. But we spent way too much time on this. We didn't spend much money. Um, but uh, for me to be a professional in my career, I am a little embarrassed as to how much <laughs> input that I have uh, spent on filming this and editing it and lock as well. I've drugged some other people down with me, but, um, definitely check out the sticks video. Um, we have a couple of other products that we're interested in releasing, um, 
in the future that are uh, from the same nature, kind of parody, making fun of other ridiculous things. But uh, anyway, check it out. Sticks, that's a S-T-I-X. It's trademarked. It's ours, patented. Um, but check it out on Facebook. I think it's up to like 15,000 views in a day. It's crazy. Um, anyway, but with that being said, we're going we're gonna to sign off. Um, it's good uh, talking to you all tonight. I appreciate you all coming over and doing this. Um, and uh, good luck this season, and good luck to everybody listening. We're starting to get into the heart of the season here, so good luck to you out there. All right, y'all be good. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. If you've got anyone you'd like to hear on the show, send us an email at info at louisianabowhunter.com. We want to say a huge thank you to our sponsors, Old Cypress Outdoors, Cousin Smokehouse, and Steve German's Taxidermy. We could not put this podcast on without you, so thank you so much for your support. Y'all be sure to subscribe to the podcast to receive updates for when we release new episodes. And make sure you follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website at louisianabowhunter.com. See y'all next week.